Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors podcast series. I'm Amanda White, editor of top1000funds.com and director of institutional content at Connexus Financial. My guest today is Jeffrey Rubin, who is chief investment strategist at CPP Investments, which manages the assets of Canada's largest pension fund, which amounts to about $410 billion Canadian dollars. Jeffrey is responsible for overall fund level investment strategy and heads the total portfolio management department and has overall management accountability for the oversight and management of the fund's investment portfolio. Welcome to you, Jeff. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So how are things for you in Canada, Jeff? How are you holding up? Uh, We're holding up. Thank you for asking. Um, We are, I would say, slowly and cautiously re-emerging from uh, quarantine and social distancing here. But uh, given the circumstances, everyone is holding up as best as you might expect. That's good to hear. So I'm keen to talk to you today about the portfolio and the activities of the past few months, the good, the bad and and the ugly. Um, CPP Investments process historically has included a lot of scenario planning. Had you in fact tested the portfolio for a pandemic or health crisis of this type? And if so, what did that reveal and how did it influence your risk management and, and your allocations? Yeah, the 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 use of of scenarios both for for understanding and anticipating the, the performance of our portfolio as well as our organization is something we do quite frequently. Uh, to answer your question specifically, no, we did not anticipate a a scenario uh, exactly the nature of of what just transpired. And and to me, I, I like using this scenario analysis not to try to predict or anticipate specific scenarios, but but rather to understand how resilient your portfolio and your processes and your people are in the face of any number of different types of scenarios. And I think in that regard, the scenario analysis and stress testing that we did uh, in the, the past few years really helped us. It helped make sure our portfolio is broadly resilient uh, to events such as this. And I think it really helped us improve some of our internal processes around things like financial crisis management and how we need to pivot or flex our governance and our internal decision-making in times such as this. So no, the, the COVID scenario, the impact on employment, the extraordinary impact to economies around the globe, we never really ran a scenario of this particular nature through the system, but but by virtue of running a, a whole variety of scenarios and looking to understand our resiliency and improve our resiliency across them all, I think it, it has really helped both our portfolio and organization. So resilience certainly seems to be a bit of a theme that's being talked about these days. What can you, can you tell me then, Jeff, what some of the specific scenarios that you do test regularly, what are they? So an example would be a GFC scenario. And we want to make sure when we talk about that resiliency that we have a degree of flexibility at our portfolio to be able to to meet all of our obligations, no matter the situation, plus maintain uh, our, our investment strategy profile. So let's take liquidity, for example. Uh, we want to make sure that through even extraordinary downturns, such as a GFC level downturn, 
Uh, we have liquidity at hand that is sufficient not just to meet all of the legal obligations that we face and that would arise in a downturn, things like margin calls on derivatives, but we also want to ensure that we have liquidity sufficient to support our investment plan for some number of months, liquidity to support rebalancing if we choose to do that, and liquidity to take advantage of, of tactical opportunities that might arise. It's, it's all of that work that we've done prior to the downturn to make sure that we have a balance sheet position that uh, can both uh, be a really effective defense against against unanticipated downsides and also allow us to play offense to an appropriate degree. Uh, that's the kind of resiliency that we test in advance and, and we've been obviously closely managing and monitoring throughout this crisis. And we'll get to some of those specific specifics and I also want to talk to you about both liquidity and rebalancing but for now let's sort of take, stay a bit big picture and some of the issues discussed at our Fiduciary Investors Symposium of which you've been a great contributor are geopolitical risk and deglobalization, and these themes alongside other disruptive trends like healthcare and mobility and big data have accelerated during the crisis. How do you think about these big themes in your decision making and how do they feed into your overall portfolio allocations? I think you you I think you you struck that question nicely because it feels like a lot of what has happened on the geopolitical stage through the crisis was an acceleration or amplification of some of the underlying trends that we've been seeing over the few years prior and uh I think that's that's an interesting notion. As a long horizon investor, we tend to think these things play out over years or decades, and perhaps it's the situation that under moments of extreme duress, things move and and progress even more quickly in in steps as opposed to a, a continuous line. So I, I think that's that's a really interesting notion. The the uh, you know the the challenges to, to globalization. Uh, as noted, we're, we're building prior and, and have really come to the fore, uh, in some cases due to just logistical supply chain resiliency and the reshoring movement and, 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 and those kinds of notions, which are going to have, uh, a, a, a limiting effect on overall global growth. And they're going to have potentially an impact on inflation and the importation of inflation that we might see across a number of different economies. Uh, poor economic growth and high inflation is a scenario that is the most challenging for large institutional investors. Uh, that's something we, we, we certainly need to keep a strong eye out for. I think the, the, the notions of rising inflation have not yet, uh, you know, are not yet starting to manifest in terms of, of some of the more immediate signs. But the longer term considerations of things like deglobalization and and more confrontational geopolitics, uh, it, it's it's a challenge. It is a challenge for global economies, and it's a challenge for for the the kind of inflation targeting regimes that 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 central banks have have adopted over the last couple of decades. Uh, what, what do we do in the face of that, Amanda? I, I think we, we call upon our 
our investment beliefs and our comparative advantages and approaches that have served us well in the past, including really effective diversification, predicting exactly where these geopolitics will head and who the winners and losers will be will be far more difficult than making sure we are effectively spreading our bets across a variety of different uh, different scenarios or different regimes or different different countries to make sure that that as these dynamics play out, we have have a real measure of balance in the portfolio. So picking up on that, Jeff, you know, CPP Investments has been very positive on the outlook for China and you've got about 25% of your portfolio invested in Asia, uh, which is actually relatively high for, you know, a lot of very large institutional investors. So you've, you know, been very positive on the outlook for, for China and Asia. Is that still the case and, and how's that playing out? Yeah, we're as enthusiastic about the, the broad region and, and, and about onshore China in particular as we have been. Um, it's undeniable that, that the Chinese economy is, is, is going to remain in its, in its place as, as one of the top one or two economies uh, in the world, no matter how the, the geopolitics or, or deglobalization plays out. I think they've demonstrated a sufficient degree of, of pivot to a, a domestically driven economy that, uh, that it's hard to anticipate is going to materially, uh, is going to materially fade. So I, I, uh, by, by virtue of its prominence on the globe and our need to be uh, a well-diversified global investor, it's inevitable that we're going to be investing in China. And it's, and it's something that we think is is going to continue to deliver diversification. The decoupling of these economies will probably only amplify the the you know only only amplify the the distinctions between the, the two different economies and their underlying capital markets. So I think from a proposition of of diversification, I think it becomes and and remains ever so important to a to a uh, to a global investor. I think the the individual investment opportunities within China, the market inefficiencies, and the prospects for active investors to uh, to to get access to to alpha and and incremental returns above and beyond those provided by the markets broadly, I think remains uh, a a very attractive prospect for China. So, uh, if China right now is is say eight or nine percent of our portfolio. I'd expect it to to get to sixteen or seventeen percent over the next five years, as we build out our active investing presence and as we uh, make sure that we are we are designing and delivering an investment portfolio that, at some level, broadly mirrors that of the economic global footprint of which China and the Asia region will continue to be incredibly important contributors to. So looking at sort of asset allocation more broadly, you've traditionally had a lot of money invested in unlisted markets. So you've got nearly 25% in private equity, 11 or so percent in real estate, 8.5% in infrastructure, nearly 4% in real assets. So let's talk about that allocation in, in terms of two things, which you alluded to earlier, liquidity and rebalancing. First of all, 
rebalancing has been a part of the fund's approach for a long time. Is this still the case and what impact has rebalancing had over the past few months, perhaps particularly with regards to the equity market? Yeah, so rebalancing remains a, a really important part of our investment belief set, our overall investment strategy. Uh, and and the way we, we do our rebalancing is, is calling upon that total portfolio approach. We try to do the best we can to understand the true underlying factor exposure of our portfolio at all points in time. And to the extent that that delivered factor profile deviates from the intended factor profile that we want to maintain, that is what triggers a rebalance. So we do so in risks, you know, using risk views of the portfolio. And, and we do so to ensure that the, the underlying factor exposure of our portfolio uh, remains as, 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 uh, as, as tightly uh, bound to the, the target as, as we possibly can through cycles and over time. Uh, what we found over the last few months is that uh, as, as markets, as equity markets sold off around the world in March and as, as fixed income rallied and, and the Canadian dollar weakened, that had a cumulative impact to our investment portfolio that drove it away from the intended or target factor profile that we wanted to maintain. That's what drove a rebalance. That's what drove a, uh, a fairly large buy of both developed market and emerging market equities and a sell of developed market fixed income uh, at the, the latter days of, of March and into April. It was not a tactical call, Amanda. It was not a, a notion of, of cheap or dear. It was instead a consideration that the, the portfolio we had in terms of its factor exposure, was different than the portfolio we wanted, the target. It had drifted away. And it was not just our public securities that drove that view, but it was a view of the total portfolio. So we had to do the work to try to understand how all of those illiquid assets had changed in value so that we understood what overall factor composition, both liquid and illiquid, we had in the total portfolio. And with that, armed with that view, we were able to identify the balance of trade that best restored our intended factor profile. That was the rebalancing we did. And uh, we think over very long horizons, it will add value. It, it certainly did over this very short window that we're looking at. So it's evolved really from a crude rebalancing of deviating from a, t- a certain percentage target to actually an understanding of the underlying factors and, and a rebalancing based on that understanding of that total portfolio view. That's exactly right. We, we've always had a view that the rebalancing premium is something that uh, we as an organization are positioned to go after and try to harvest. We've, we've refined the way that we've implemented that to have real fidelity with our total portfolio approach and the way that we think about the true underlying factor-based composition of the portfolio. That's how we design our portfolio. That's how we think about our portfolio. And, and that's how we manage our portfolio, uh, in particular through this rebalancing process. 
many academics over the years have been trying to put a uh, a, a basis point or percentage point uh, qualification around the Canadian model and maybe in the future we'll be able to put some sort of return attribution to the total portfolio management approach as well, Jeff. So, you know, keep us posted on that. Um, I, look forward, I look forward to that. So let's get a bit more specific with regards to portfolio positions. What's changed in the last few months? What opportunities have you invested in? And what have been the wins and, and what losses have you incurred? Uh, most of the most of the investments that we made over the last few months, I think, are more consistent with our ongoing investment strategies and aspirations, as opposed to uh, very sharp, immediate tactical opportunities. I think if if we look at the if we look at the ledger for the last couple of months, it was a some of the investments on there are uh, a set of renewable and wind farm assets in Europe. There is a large investment in uh, logistical warehouses in South Korea, and we uh, made an incremental investment uh, on our uh, toll road, our toll road facility in in Mexico with the Slim Group. So. Uh, those kinds of opportunities are not things that that arose because of the crisis. They were things that we pursued despite the crisis, and and are things that we believe in for the long haul. Um, that's most of the activity we've done. There was a very brief period uh, earlier on in the crisis where there were some extraordinary opportunities in the credit market that uh, that I think really reflected an illiquidity premium as opposed to a a, a credit risk. Premium, but those opportunities weren't of, of of sufficient material size for us, nor did they last terribly long. We're not uh, at this point. We're not seeing uh, materially sized, long lives, extraordinary distressed opportunities in the kinds of markets that we invest in. So our investment approaches has has not changed dramatically from that uh, that we were pursuing even prior to the crisis. So over the past 10 years, CPP Investments has an annualised rate of return of 9.9%. So let's have a look at the next 10 years. Looking forward, what's your outlook for the next at least few years and and how will you be making changes to the portfolio because of that? What are the opportunistic investments you're looking at and, and probably more interesting, what are the more strategic positions that you might change because of you know, a revised outlook. Yeah, the the I think the returns we've delivered over the last decade will be very difficult to match in the coming decade. Our, you know, the the expected level of returns in a world with with a zero real cash rate and and risk premia that. We don't believe are significantly different from those that we've experienced uh, over time. Just doesn't add up, Amanda. Just doesn't add up to a ten percent level, no matter no matter how globally diversified and refined one's investment strategy. It's it's we're we're not anticipating those same levels. Um, in terms of of what that environment implies for for our approach. Uh, 
I think we're going to continue on our our course, which is going to continue deepening our emerging market exposure. It will continue refining our active investment strategies. Uh, you mentioned earlier some of the themes that uh, are really important for for investments the world over themes around healthcare and automobility and an aging demographic in many markets those are themes we'll continue focusing on and if anything that the crisis has really accelerated the number of those considerations uh, one of our investments that we that we look to uh, in advance of the crisis was Moderna, which is is obviously in the news these days for for being among the top vaccine uh, developers uh, over the last year. That was an investment not made with any kind of of prescience around around what's going to happen with with the COVID crisis. It's part of a an overall focus on healthcare and on medical royalties that we think is going to be a, a really important part of our strategic profile going forward. So Jeff, I guess to finish with, I mean, it sounds like you're staying the course, you're staying true to your investment beliefs, staying true to your portfolio management approach. Would you say that that's a sort of parting word to other investors listening, that that this is a blip in the road and, and, and stay the course for the long term? Yeah, I think that's that's well put, and it, it it doesn't relieve us of the obligations to maintain a sharp situational awareness as to what is happening in the here and now, and uh, we need to be constantly learning from that and and thinking about whether or not adjustments to our strategies are merited. Uh, we, as an investor, and I know a whole bunch of your readers and listeners, Amanda, are are trying to, to steward institutions through very long horizon perspectives. You know, we, we're investing for, for, for generations, many of these institutions. I, I think these kinds of episodes we should certainly anticipate are going to happen. And the next one, who knows what it'll be and when it'll happen and how severe it'll be. Let's all make sure we are designing and delivering on investment strategies that are resilient to any manner of these kinds of, of episodes and can continue delivering effective returns uh, that we're charged with delivering. I think that that kind of perspective does help when you can't go out and get a haircut, Amanda. It's keeping that eye on the long horizon, uh, I think, is something that, that, that we all really need to focus on. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you very much and please take care. I appreciate you having me and look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Thanks, Jeff. Bye-bye. Take care.